We're turning again to Matthew chapter 24. These are the verses where it all comes together. This is the this is the moment that we've been waiting for. Beginning at verse 29, Matthew writes, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his glory. We thank you for his majesty. We thank you that when you act in this way, you will act decisively. That as scripture says, every eye will see. And the focus of all of mankind will be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as we look at these verses in detail to understand your purposes and to understand what will happen, even though we don't know when. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this is, this is it. This is the second coming of Christ. This is uh, the, the, the wonderful moment that we're waiting for. In his first advent, the Lord Jesus emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave. He was made in the likeness of, of men, he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. With his resurrection, he was highly exalted by God the Father. He was given the name above every other name. And when he returns, he returns in that glory. He returns in that majesty. So I, I want to emphasize three things before we dive into the text, just to kind of have in the back of your mind. First, Jesus is going to return personally and physically. This is not talking about him returning in spirit, whatever that might mean to somebody. It's not talking about him uh, coming in, in the, the form of his church or the gospel that's preached. It's not talking about uh, some new age Christ consciousness. It's talking about the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, who, who became a man, was born of Mary, returning in his fullness of deity and fullness of humanity in the clouds of the sky. The second, the Lord Jesus is going to return with power and great glory. In his first advent, he took on human flesh. He veiled his deity. He never stopped being as God. He never stopped acting as God, but he couldn't be seen as God. He appeared to be a man. Well, he won't appear to be merely man when it returns. He will come with all of the glory and the majesty of God on high. And there will be no mistaking who he is. And third, Jesus is going to return to accomplish all of the Father's purposes, some of which are, but not all, uh, his, own his own vindication. He's been hated and maligned since his life on earth, but Jesus will be vindicated as the Son of God. 
God will prove himself true. The, the overwhelming majority of prophecies in scripture have to do with Jesus and they will all be perfectly fulfilled. Jesus will inaugurate his kingdom on earth at long last. I've talked about different millennial views over the past several weeks and th there's views that his kingdom will be uh, brought about by his church. And then at the end of some golden age, Jesus will return. That, that's post-millennialism. Amillennialism says that right now his kingdom is on earth and that's all the kingdom of the earth will ever see. And that's simply not what scripture describes. He will inaugurate his kingdom. He will restore and redeem Israel and fulfill God's unilateral covenants. There's five covenants in scripture, four of which are unilateral. That means God alone makes them. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenants are unilateral covenants. God doesn't say to man, if you do this, I'll do this. God simply says, here's what I'm going to do. And Jesus in the, the, the millennial kingdom is going to fulfill all of those. His second coming will be to set that up so that they can be fulfilled. And then the, the one uh, true mutual covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant, where God says to Israel, if you do this, I will do this, has already been fulfilled by Jesus in his earthly life, and he will bring it to a perfect fruition when he comes again. And finally, we, we often don't think about this, I think, but the very first command in scripture, we have never fulfilled. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We've done that. Fill the earth. We've kind of done that. But subdue it and have dominion. And we gave up dominion. When Adam sinned, man lost dominion. Jesus is going to restore that. And for however long the millennial kingdom lasts, I think it'll be a thousand years because, you know, millennium. But however long it lasts, man will be able to fulfill that command of God through Jesus Christ. So let's look at these verses. We begin with, with darkness. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You know, there, there are people who say the Bible is not a book of science. It's not a book of, of astronomy or geology or, or anything like that. So we can't expect it to be accurate, but this is accurate. The sun will be darkened and then the moon will not reflect the sunlight. He doesn't begin with the moon. He begins with the sun because the moon has no light of its own. We know that and evidently they did too. So the timing is very clear. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, just described the great tribulation, Jesus will return. Matthew 24, 22, he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And here he explains how. He will return and bring that tribulation and suffering to an end. There's no gap between the two. There's no golden age. <laughs> There's only the second coming of Christ that brings all of that to an end in a very dramatic way. The enormity, the magnitude of this simply can't be denied. I want you to think about this. The sun will be darkened. The moon will no longer reflect the light of the sun. So what happens to the stars? Well, in camping trips as a kid out in the desert where there's virtually no city light around, when it's a moonless night, 
you, you feel like you can read by the light of the stars, but the stars are going to fall. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give light and all the stars will fall. That puts all of the focus on Christ. The very powers of heaven will be shaken. That's a reference to the spiritual powers and authorities that exist in the angelic realm, probably majorly, uh, primarily demonic powers. And Jesus uses language here that would be very familiar to Jews of his time. Theologians would call it apocalyptic language, end of the world language, the end has come language, doomsday language. Adam read from Joel chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, Zion, make a loud shout on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble for the day of Yahweh is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom. And then in Joel 2, 30 and 31, he says, God says, I will put wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And we see this darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars and the shaking of heaven and earth repeatedly. In your notes uh, on this point, you've got references to Joel 3, Amos 5 and 8, Zephaniah 1, Isaiah, multiple chapters in Isaiah. There, there are passages elsewhere where the darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of the stars is connected to the day of the Lord. Um, all of this is talking about that day. These are not natural events. These are not astronomic events. Uh, astronomers, I just read this week, say the sun in uh, four or five billion years will run out of hydrogen. And two or three billion years after that, it'll just collapse. Natural event. What the Bible says is God is going to flip the switch and just shut it down. He'll just turn off all of the lights so that just like a darkened theater, the lights completely drop and then a spotlight hits his son as he comes back with glory. No wonder every eye sees him. No wonder nobody can miss it. In Psalm 2, the father commands all people on earth to worship the son or face his wrath. In Matthew Chapter 3, during Jesus' baptism, in Matthew 17, during Jesus' transfiguration, the Father says out loud from heaven, so people can hear, this is my son. It's as though a massive hand comes out with a finger pointing at Christ. This is my son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. And that's what all of these events are designed to do, to put the spotlight firmly on Christ. As a result of what Jesus has done, Philippians says, uh, God has exalted him and given him the name of every name, above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is God himself, to the glory of God the Father. That's what's happening in this moment. That's what's happening in this moment. The darkness of the day of the Lord will be an act of God by which he draws the attention of every human being to his Son. And then they see a sign, and it's a sign to mourn. Then, all the, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
The sign is not followed by interpretation or opinion. Nobody writes it up for the internet or does a podcast on it. The sign appears and immediately people mourn. Everybody on earth mourns. You want evidence that the church is not here. We would not be mourning the return of our Lord. Everybody on earth mourns. Every tribe. The word tribe describes people grouped in the various ways people are grouped. By culture, by physical traits, by language, by religion, by geography, by ethnicity, by politics, by, by borders. However people group themselves, everybody on earth will mourn. The wicked will mourn, and Israel, who is being redeemed, will mourn. It's two different mournings now, but mourning. For the, for the world, mourning is an odd response. The world has just faced seven years of tribulation, seven years of suffering that's unparalleled. Nothing like it has ever been seen on the face of the earth. A third of humanity will die, Revelation says. God has been pouring out his judgment on the earth, systematically judging the nations and the systems of the world before he ever gets to individual judgment. Beyond that, the Antichrist has gone to war against Israel and has brought about tremendous suffering on the part of Israel and God's people. It's the worst possible time. It's a time so bad, Jesus says, that if it wasn't cut short, nobody would survive it. Jesus cuts it short. And they mourn. They mourn the end of the worst time they've ever known. Why would they do that? Well, let me give you some ideas. You, you might have ideas of your own. I, I think they'll mourn because Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and the world does not want him to be. They'll mourn because the darkening of the sun and moon and stars will make it clear that judgment has come, and it cannot be escaped. And all of those who are still in their guilt and their sins will realize this is it. They'll mourn because every human religion will be proven false and idolatrous, including many that claim to be centered around Jesus but live in rebellion against him. They'll mourn because God's agenda is no longer on hold. It's no longer waiting. In Romans 2, we read that it's the kindness of God that, that leads us to repentance. In Romans 9, we see that it's God patiently enduring vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to have mercy on vessels of mercy prepared for eternal life. But God reaches a point where he says, I'm not waiting anymore. Now I'm moving forward. They'll mourn because human life will be completely interrupted. We know it's going to be a bad time. Jesus has made it clear that it's going to be a bad time. But we know in the worst times, what do people do? They continue to get married. They continue to have children. They continue to have birthdays. They continue to work. They continue to plant. They continue to harvest. They continue to celebrate they continue to check off bucket list items we, we people continue to live but every event taking place at that moment simply it takes second place it simply stops the weddings will be stopped the funerals will be stopped i don't know about the births the bucket lists won't matter anymore those, those once-in-a-lifetime vacations are ended abruptly. 
And then Christ returns and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Our world says seeing is believing, right? Well, they'll see him. Peter in second Peter chapter three, he talks about all the people who say, where's the sign of his coming? Things have been going on for thousands of years, just as they always have. But there will be proof. He will come. He will, he will show up. He's only going to return a second time once. All at once. And he'll come with power and great glory unmistakably. God says in Genesis chapter six, my spirit will not strive with man forever. And he gave man at that time, a 120 year countdown to the great flood. Another countdown has been running in the mind of God and it's counting down every day. Every day we're closer to that countdown being complete. Now we don't know when it ends. Jesus disciples in Matthew 24, their first question is when? Will all this happen? And Jesus says in verse 36, he, he takes his time before he gets to their first question. In verse 36, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of God, nor the son, but the father alone. So there's a countdown that exists within the mind of God, the father. And I believe, frankly, we'll talk about it when we get there. God, the son. Jesus, the son of man, doesn't know. Jesus, the son of God, knows, I believe. In any case, we don't know. But that countdown is moving forward a second at a time, a minute at a time, a, a day at a time. This old world that's been rolling along for 6,000 years now in its tracks will be stopped dead in its tracks to face the fact that the son of God has now returned in glory and great power, accompanied by clouds in the sky. These are not atmospheric clouds. These are the clouds of the glory of God. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 says, Yahweh went ahead of Israel in a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. That cloud and fire are figures, uh, descriptions of the, the indescribable glory of God and his presence with Israel. Clouds are frequently used in that way. Uh, and you have the verses there, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Daniel, Matthew, Acts. Over and over again, Jesus ascends in the clouds. That's not atmospheric clouds. That's the clouds of the glory of God when he ascends to heaven. And he comes with that kind of declaration of power and majesty, no longer veiled, no longer humbled, no longer the infant in the manger, not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but as the Lord of glory coming to take possession of his own. I've been reading from Revelation 19 just about every week, and I, and I will today. It still applies. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him, which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. 
Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No wonder the wicked world mourns. But why don't they repent? It proves the reality of the depravity of man. It proves the reality of spiritual death, that they will not repent. Israel will also mourn. Zechariah 12.10, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So the entire nation of Israel will see Jesus Christ. Every Jew alive at the time will see Jesus, their Messiah, whom their fathers crucified, and they will mourn. But this is a mourning unto repentance. And for salvation, how do we know that? Because God has poured out on them the spirit of grace and supplication. The mourning of the world is worldly sorrow. It's earthly sorrow. It just brings death. The, the mourning of Israel is what Romans, uh, Paul in Romans describes as godly sorrow, or 1 Corinthians. It's somewhere. It's in the Bible, okay? Look it up. It's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to a desire to be made right with God and an acknowledgement of sin. Every eye will see him return, Revelation 1.7 says. Every eye will be upon him. The Lord Jesus returns in power and great glory, filled with majesty in a tremendous display of, the, of the, the power and glory of God Almighty. And I think perhaps, I can't prove it, but, but maybe it just makes sense that he would return and there would just be a moment of silence. What's he going to do now? He gives a command. He commands his angels. He sends forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So perhaps after a moment of silence, Jesus turns to the holy angels and he commands them to go search for his elect over the whole surface of the earth. He sends them in every direction, the four winds. He sends them to the furthest boundaries of the earth from one, from one end of the sky to the other. They will leave no place on earth un, unexamined. No place will be too remote. Think about this for a moment. In the garden, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter went to defend him. Jesus turned to him and, and said, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion was around 6,000, give or take. Jesus says, I've got 72,000 angels that are ready. They're just waiting for me to give the word. All I have to do is say, help, and they'll be here. You can't see them. They don't have a distance to travel. They're here now. All I have to do is say the word. 
He didn't say the word. He refused to call for help. Instead, he submitted to the fullness of suffering for our sins. But when it comes to his people, he will send those angels out. Hebrews 1.14 says that they are all ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who are to inherit salvation. I don't know what that means. If, if, if anybody tries to give you a book on what angels do for you, throw it away. We've got one verse in the Bible that tells us what angels do for us. It's not worth writing a book for. But they, they're sent by God to serve. How? I don't know. He does. And certainly in that moment when he returns and he sends them, they go to serve the elect. And maybe it's much more than 72,000. Maybe the 72,000 were just those that were prepared And maybe every saint on earth, maybe every elect person on earth at that time has an angel devoted to them. And Jesus sends them out and not one of them would dare return empty-handed. Not one. They won't be stopped in their obedience to that task. Jesus acts like a king. He doesn't say to his angels, you guys just go ahead and have a seat. It's been a long way. I'll go get my own. No, he stands now as a king. And he sends his servants out. And his servants bring back his elect. He commands them and they instantly fly to do his will. And maybe it's the romantic in me. I know it's the romantic in me. But I imagine that those angels, when he gives that command, don't grovel, but burst into song for the joy of what they're doing. There are people, not all of us, but there are some people who are fascinated by the idea of angels and what an angel would look like and what would it be like if an angel appeared now and how wonderful it would be to see an angel. Do you realize the angels long to look into what God is doing on earth? The angels long to see you. The angels see you in a way you never see yourself. They see you as the redeemed bride of Christ. A sinner, yes, but forgiven by the great wonder of God's grace and the love of Christ. And so I think those angels go out overflowing with joy at the sheer wonder of serving the lamb and serving his bride. And those of the world, the wicked of the world, will watch this with terror and rage and blasphemy. His second coming will have vindicated him as Lord and Savior. They'll prove that God is true. He will send out his angels to bring back just his elect. And that means that those angels will pass by those who have hated him. They will pass by those who thought their goodness will enough that was enough. They will pass by those who worshiped other gods but said, I'm sincere, so it's okay. They will pass by those who mocked Christianity as primitive and mythological and made up stories. They will pass by those who thought their power and wealth could protect them. They will pass by those that the world held up the highest. And they will seek and find the gather and gather the elect of God, those those humble, lowly men and women still in their mortal flesh, still marked by age and full of weakness, will be escorted to the presence of Christ and they won't be brought in as captives in chains. They will be brought in like a bride being escorted down the aisle. There's joy in the presence of the 
in the presence of the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents, how much more joy and gladness and praises are sung when they bring back the bride of Christ. As we bring this home, there are two things I want to underscore for you. One is the hope of the second coming. Jesus Christ is coming again. Nothing can stop him. Nothing will stop him. He's not waiting for anything to occur on earth. He's simply waiting for the Father to say, go. That's all he's waiting for. Scripture is abundantly clear on this. Jesus himself promises he's coming back. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to his work. Every man according to his work for the wicked means judgment. Well, what does he render every man according to his work for eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us in John 6 what the work of God is. What is the work of God? It's to believe on him whom he sent. Have you done that work? Jesus comes to reward you for that work, for that faith in him. Jesus says again in Revelation twenty two twenty, yes, I am coming quickly. Now, can I just say this? And I know the Lord's listening, so sorry, but he defines quickly differently than I define quickly. But if the Lord had come back quickly then, like I define quickly, I would never have come into existence to know him. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that God does not keep time the way we do. That he's patient toward his people. He's waiting for all of his elect to come to repentance and faith in Christ because he's not willing that any one of his should perish. And so he says in Revelation twenty two twenty, yes, I am coming quickly. And John agrees with him in prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's all John can say at the end is yes. Okay, I agree. Ditto to that. You got my vote. Amen. So the hope of the second coming is first and foremost. That no matter what opposition we face, no, what our, no matter what opposition the gospel faces, the Lord faces, it won't be able to stop him when he's ready. It's the kindness of God that, that causes him to delay as we think of him delaying. Which, by the way, means that when we look at those who don't know the Lord that we love and that we care about, we can simply continue to pray until they've died. Because perhaps his kindness will be expressed to them like the thief on the cross just hours before death. We don't know. And the second thing I want to underline for you is the right that we have to peace in Christ. The prophet Nahum uh, said, Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum Chapter 1, verse 7. Here's your memory verse for today. Yahweh is good. A strong defense in the day of distress. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows us. He knows us. That doesn't mean that he ignores our sin. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, Nevertheless, the firm God of, uh, foundation of God, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's on the seal. That's awesome. The Lord knows those who are his. And then down at the bottom, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. In, in doing jail ministry, I've met quite a few who would claim to be Christians. They would say, the Lord knows me because I'm his, but they have not departed from wickedness. We're not saved because we depart from wickedness. We're saved so that we may depart from wickedness. So he knows your fears. He knows your weaknesses. He's not promised you an easy earthly life. He's promised you the, the reverse. These things I have spoken to you, he says, so that you may have peace in the world. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our sufferings are not a reflection of our relationship with Christ. He hears our prayers. He hears uh, our desire to be sanctified, and he sanctifies us, and he teaches us, and he stands with us, and he never forsakes us. So if you're in Christ, he's your hope. He's the one who hears you. He's the one who sanctifies you. He's the one who teaches you. He's the one who walks with you with, through life and stands with you now in every moment of every day. He'll never forsake you. There's trouble now. There's pain now. There's difficulty now. But this is the promise that the, that the Lord makes in Peter. After you have suffered for a little while, I like how God defines little while, got to compare it to eternity after you've suffered for a little while the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore strength and confirm and ground you so life is brief and that means the suffering is too life is short and that means the grief is short it's just a little while longer endure trust him Say with the Apostle Paul, these are good words to say, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That day is the day we've been talking about, when it, it all comes to pass. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your word. Would you enable us to rejoice in gladness at the coming of Christ the first time to take on human flesh, to bear our sins on the cross, to earn perfect righteousness by his holy life, to satisfy your justice, to take away our sins, to give us life, to clothe us in your righteousness. <clears throat> and we thank you for the second coming of Christ, which we're waiting for. And we wait with eagerness for it. We long for those that we don't know to come to know you. And we long for the wickedness of this world to end. Would you help us now to rejoice in these truths and to trust you and to find our joy in you. And we thank you in Jesus' name.